Let's take a second to pray. Father, we do uh, just bring ourselves into your presence today. We thank you that you are here and we pray that as we spend this time in your word that you will speak to us, that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what your spirit is saying and that we might grow in Christ-likeness as a result. Just be amongst us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine, just for a moment if you can, um, you're part of an army, and you're part of an army that has just entered enemy territory, uh, enemies who have, uh, have every intention and desire to see the end of you as quickly as possible, and you've come into this place, but you are all of a sudden incapacitated. You are unable to fight for days. It's an incongruous kind of a situation, isn't it? No army would naturally, normally, or under any ordinary circumstances put themselves into that kind of situation, but that's exactly what happened to the army of Israel shortly after they crossed the Jordan and entered into the Promised Land. You might remember the story of, uh, of Gilgal <clears throat> when Joshua led the people across and then at the command of the Lord was asked to circumcise the troops. And so as they crossed opposite the city of Jericho, uh, the Lord said to Joshua to make flint knives, which makes me cringe, uh, and circumcise all the male of Israelites, a kind of story that makes any guy wince, I think. But it happened for three reasons. First of all, it was a test of obedience for Joshua. It's interesting if you have a look at the scriptures when the Israelites crossed the land, it tells us that the fear of the Lord entered the, the, the Amorites and the others who were there. They were scared stiff. Uh, but even so, uh, Joshua still had to exercise much faith in taking this action that would immobilize his army in the midst of uh, an aggressive enemy. And so the first observation we might make about what was happening there at Gilgal was that it was a test of faith and obedience for Joshua. The second observation we might make, <clears throat> and I'll speak fairly poignantly about this, is that it was uh, a very physical reminder of God's promise to the people, the promise that he had made to Abraham of children and nationhood. And not to put too fine a point on it or to speak too crassly, the very organ that was the most focus of circumcision obviously has a lot to do with reproduction. And so there was a reminder to God's people of God's promise to children. But third... And perhaps most significantly, the circumcision that took place there at Gilgal, described for us in Joshua, the book of Joshua, actually turned the people back to the covenant that was made with Abraham. And of course, that covenant was first foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 12 and then has developed throughout the next few chapters where God promised Abraham that I will make your descendants into a mighty nation. In fact, God used three metaphors to describe how many there would be. Do you remember what they were? I actually hadn't realized there were three. I could remember two. Because God said to Abraham, look up at the sky and you remember how how this goes. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. How many of you have actually gone out and tried to count the stars? 
it's a fascinating experience. We had, and I think I've shared this story um, on occasions, we had uh, exchange students come and stay with us from Japan, mostly from the city of Tokyo. And if you can imagine living in a city as large as Tokyo with, uh, as is characteristic of any city, light pollution, uh, when you look up into the sky, what do you see? Nothing. Maybe the odd aeroplane, if you're lucky. But interestingly too, and I hadn't realised this, the Northern Hemisphere star view is not actually quite as full as the Southern Hemisphere. And so <coughs> we used to take our students out into our paddock, which was away from the city, away from the city lights. In fact, one time we went out to Hall's Gap, way away out, and we lay down in the middle of a car park on a bright starry night, no moon, and we just watched the stars. And I can remember, I think her name was Yuki, was it, Diana? Uh, Akari, one of the girls, just looked up there and said, I've never seen anything as beautiful in my life. Couldn't ever seen the stars before. And can you imagine Abraham looking up and going, you kidding me, God, you're going to give me that many descendants? But that's not the only metaphor God used. He also said, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You ever tried to count sand? I have this kind of proclivities towards numbers, you know, playing with numbers. And uh, at one time I remember sitting in the midst of some sand dunes in a place where all you could see was sand and picking up some sand and, and sort of spreading it across my hand and, and wondering how many grains of sand would fit into one square millimetre. And then you multiply that to a square centimetre and then to a square metre and then to a square kilo. How many cubic kilometres of sand are there in the world? My goodness. But it didn't stop there because Abraham was told by God on another occasion, you can look this up, and I don't have the verse off the top of my head, <clears throat> your, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth spread out over all of the earth. Now, Abraham would have known about dust. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you'll understand dust. It's, it's just a rocky place and there's dirt and dust everywhere. Can you imagine descendants spreading out like dust? Some significant promises that were uh, reiterated by what was going on here when God commanded Joshua to circumcise the people there at Gilgal. This circumcision business that was celebrated there in Joshua was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham for his household and for generations that were to come. It was something that they were to continue to do. A sign which, interestingly enough, the Jewish people have continued to this very day. A sign which actually was to point the people to their relationship with God, right? Now, we're familiar with signs, aren't we? I'm starting to wonder. Uh, yes, we are. We, we live in a country that loves signs. You drive anywhere on the road, there's signs everywhere. There's parts of Melbourne I detest driving in because you're trying to find your way. You've got that many signs. It's a visual overload. Here's how silly my proclivity towards numbers is. Um, occasionally, I'll try and count the signs and then I'll calculate. You know, every one of those signs is on a piece of galvanised uh, steel, 65 millimetre pole, about three metres long, say so 600 mils in the ground, 2.4 out, so say three metres. If there's 10 signs, that's 30 metres of poles. How many metres of galvanised iron has been used in Australia? <laughs> I reckon there's enough to get to the moon and back. 
Signs everywhere. We know how signs work. Signs like a stop sign. What happens when you come to a stop sign? The right answer. Thank you. Well done. You stop. And you wait there until the sign says go, right? No. We know how signs work. Who said yes? <laughs> Gail has caused traffic chaos in Wodonga for years because she doesn't understand how a stop sign You stop and you pay attention, uh, you give way to other traffic on the intersecting carriageway and then you go when it is safe to do so. We know how stop signs work. We know how speed signs work, right? What, is, what does 100 kilometre an hour speed sign mean? It means you need to drive that fast, no matter what's going on. Doesn't matter whether it's raining, sleeting, hailing, cyclone, that's how fast you've got to go, right? No. Who said yes? <laughs> I didn't see your hand. Uh, and thank you, 100 does not mean 105, Andy, or 110. You know what a no standing sign means, right? I had a, I have to tell you this story, I had a very um, unfortunate encounter with a no standing sign one day. Um, I, went to, <laughs> I went, I haven't told this story before. I went to Melbourne uh, to pick up some furniture we bought on, I think it was Gumtree or one of those sites anyway. I had to go to Brighton and the house I was going to was very close to the sea. It was a beautiful palatial kind of a mansion almost. Uh, but it just so happened that the day I went was raining, teeming cats and dogs, one of those awful, awful days. And the driveway uh, I needed to back into uh, was off the road. You had to sort of turn in between two columns, bluestone columns with a, a roller door over the top, which then uh, sort of did a, a, a 90 degree turn into the house. And I had to try and back my trailer in and around a corner all at once. So I drove out onto the court, I'm not going to tell you where it was, um, and was backing in when I heard a, a, a kind of a felt more than heard, a bump. And I thought, oh, what was that? And I got out of the car in the pouring rain and here was a no standing sign doing exactly what no standing signs should do. It was lying down. <laughs> it was not standing. <clears throat> so I kind of quickly pulled forward and I got it and I shoved it in the ground, but the ground had basically liquefied. It was that wet. And the no standing sign just kept lying down. So I just quietly lay it down and, uh, and left it there for the... Burundara Council or whoever's the council at Brighton to deal with. We know how signs uh, are, are meant to work. Signs, um, by, their, by their nature, actually point to something else, right? That stop sign points to a road rule that we understand. Uh, the speed signs point to something we understand. And so too, uh, this sign of circumcision was actually to point the people of Israel to something else. Something actually far more significant than the physical act in itself. It was, however, something that unfortunately through the history of the people of Israel uh, gave them a false sense of security in their relationship with God because they started to believe, well, as long as I'm circumcised, I'm okay. As long as I've performed this act, as long as uh, we've reflected that in, 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 on our bodies, we're okay in relationship with God. They allowed the sign to become the reality. 
but God through the Old Testament and into the New Testament went to some lengths to point out the fallacy of this thinking, reinforcing time and time and time again, interestingly enough in the Old Testament, uh, that this sign of circumcision was actually to point to something far deeper, far more significant, something that you could never see on the outside, and that was actually a changed heart. And if you have a look, even right back in the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, uh, an, an important statement that is made in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, uh, God said these words through Moses, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So right back in the book of Deuteronomy, circumcision, which was that important external sign, was uh, described as something pointing to something much more significant, an internal change, the circumcision of the heart. And in that same book of Deuteronomy, Moses promised the Israelites much, much blessing if they turned to the Lord, for the Lord would circumcise their hearts so that they might love him and that their hearts and souls, uh, sorry, with, love him with all their hearts and souls and so live. Now we might think, you know, the Old Testament's actually tied up a lot with external signs, isn't it? You know, do this, the law, all that kind of stuff. But actually, consistently and repeatedly through the Old Testament, we find God reminding his people that there's something deeper I am looking for. Jeremiah, for instance, understood this and the Apostle Paul picked this up for in Romans chapter 2 verse 28 he said, circumcision is not merely outward or physical. No man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. God's always been interested in transformation of the heart and the outside was always to point to the inside, the change on the inside. Now, I don't want to talk about circumcision this morning, although we've spent a fair bit of time doing that already. We do want to talk about baptism and the significance of baptism. And what does the outward form of baptism, that is the baptism that we might perform here if we were using this baptistry or if we went down to the river or out to the lake, what does that physical act actually point to? Is there something more significant going on than, than someone just going in the water and coming out in obedience to Jesus? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Because that external sign is actually pointing to an internal reality. That sign is acting like a sign should. It's pointing to something else. I'll be upfront with you too. We're talking about these things in light of uh, the Constitution that we're looking at making some adjustments to, and it's important that we talk about what we believe, and I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about that towards the end of the message. Uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, we have been uh, talking a little bit about changing our constitutional requirement for membership and not allowing the external become supreme over what's happening internally and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. The fulcrum or if you like the pinch point for, for what we've been talking about around our membership is of course baptism and we are 
of course, Baptists. Well, some of us, we are a very eclectic gathering, actually. And there are people who've come from all sorts of traditions and backgrounds here, and that's absolutely brilliant because that's a reflection and a demonstration of the unity that there is in God's church. But I think we actually, in this gathering, share some commonality in what we believe about baptism. Baptism is part of our DNA. We want to be careful that we don't want to lose that, uh, that distinctive. Um, we don't want to uh, compromise our teaching or our practice of baptism because I believe the Bible actually teaches us a lot about baptism and physical baptism which I'll talk about as a sign pointing to something uh, a deeper reality is actually really important we affirm that we'll continue to affirm that it is very significant as an act of obedience uh, a sign pointing to something significant uh, we affirm that as Baptists or Baptist Church generally we've generally been pretty good at understanding that baptism is a symbolic sign or an action pointing to a deeper reality but then sometimes have rushed into arguments about when we should baptize and how we should baptize uh, whether we should baptize only believers or not or whether we do it by immersion or whether other ways are, are, are appropriate or helpful which of course puts us at odds with what others uh, perhaps believe and have taught. Now I have, uh, sorry, what others believe and teach. Let me just lubricate the tonsils for a second. I happen to believe myself that the scripture uh, does teach as much about baptism and uh, it does teach us about the significance of being baptised as believers and it does teach about the significance of being baptised by immersion. There's much symbolism and appropriateness in that. And we'll talk more about the physical baptism next week, the external, the when and the how. But I want to talk this morning a little bit about the internal, that external baptism points to. That is the change that takes place, the spiritual baptism the spiritual reality that physical baptism points to. So the question is, what does physical baptism actually point us to? And to answer that question, we can turn to any number of scriptures which don't speak so much of the mode or the timing of baptism, but the reality that it is pointing to. So the first thing to say is this, true baptism, the thing that physical baptism points to is not something that we do, it's something that God does. It's something that Jesus does in us. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, if you want to land in a couple of passages with me just for a few moments, in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, John the Baptist was baptising down by the Jordan River. Uh, it was a, interesting, uh, interesting to visit the Jordan River a few years ago and see how many people want to be baptised in the Jordan. I don't know why, because really it's just a drain almost like a sewer, I suppose you could say, of all of the effluent that's come off the land to the north. Nevertheless, significant for some people. John the Baptist was baptising there by the Jordan and uh, he said, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise with the Spirit and with fire. 
Now, one of the dangers in reading this passage is that it's loaded with other meaning because as soon as I talk about being baptised with the Holy Spirit, people are going to bring in uh, uh, thinking perhaps from uh, more Pentecostal streams of the church, you know, baptism of the Spirit, ah, oh, we're talking acts, you know, gifts of the Spirit, that kind of stuff, which is a significant discussion and an important thing that we need to think about. But in this context, not what John was talking about because John was talking about something different. In this passage, John was speaking about what happens when a person becomes a Christian. The spiritual baptism that takes place, the transformation that happens in their lives. Because as soon as a person responds to God and becomes a Christian, a supernatural event takes place in their hearts. A spiritual transaction happens. At the moment of our conversion, we are united with Christ. Now, when I say that, um, we, can, we can easily become, well, not so much confused, but we can kind of minimise that because I might, for instance, and I won't be doing this, just so you know, this, uh, this is just a hypothetical, I might take out a football club membership this year. That would be a first. And I would be united with that club to some degree. And when I stand before young couples getting married, we talk about you are becoming united in marriage. And that, in some degrees, is actually a, a greater unification than joining a football club, of course. But neither of those things actually stand uh, in, in way by comparison to what happens when we become Christians and we are united in Christ because there's a transformation that takes place in our spirit so that everything that belongs to Christ becomes mine. I inherit all of that which Christ has done his work on the cross, the glorious promises of salvation, they all become mine. We become intimately united with Jesus. And that's an amazing, an amazing thing to consider. We become united with Jesus in a very fundamental manner. We're united with him in his death, in his burial and resurrection. We identify with what he did on the cross. It's as though I was there. He died for me. Our sins that were on his shoulders on the cross have been dealt with decisively and completely. It's our new self that's raised up with Christ. We are united with him in an amazing way. We are identified with Jesus and all that he did. And it's exciting. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a theologian, said this, and I'll read this uh, carefully. Catch this. He said, Here, then, is the doctrine that is before us, the doctrine of our union with Christ. Once more, we must say that it is one of the most glorious aspects of the Christian truth, one of the most profound, one of the most stimulating, one of the most comforting, indeed, I would rather like to use the word, exhilarating. There is nothing, perhaps, in the whole range and realm of doctrine which, if properly grasped and understood, gives greater assurance, greater comfort and greater hope than this doctrine of our union with Christ. Jesus in us. You've got to ask the question, what was it that got Lloyd-Jones so excited? He was actually reflecting on what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, chapter 6 verse 5 where Paul said these words if we have been united with Jesus in his death we will surely be united with him in his resurrection what a promise that is 
we will be raised to life in the same way that Jesus was raised to life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And so we can then jump to a passage like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul, speaking of the spirit, uh, a spiritual baptism, said these words. He said, There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Some people have actually read that passage from um, Ephesians and concluded that rebaptizing people, i.e. if they've been baptized as infants, they shouldn't be rebaptized or baptism's unnecessary a second time because there's one baptism, right? But that's actually a misreading of that passage because what Paul was talking about is not the physical, it's the spiritual. There is only one baptism, that's the baptism that's performed by Jesus in us. There's only one of those. One body, the body of Christ, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Some people have also looked at that passage and said, well, there's only one right way to baptise people too, by the way, and that's at the river, full immersion, our way. But that's also a misreading of that passage. Again, because Paul was talking about the baptism of the Spirit that takes place in us at that point of conversion. In uh, the book of 1 Peter, in a slightly more difficult passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter reinforced this point. In the context of a passage, he's speaking about uh, the water surrounding Noah, safe and dry while he was on the ark. And uh, Peter drew on the imagery of the Old Testament, saying, this water symbolised baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ. Now, Peter's not talking about you are saved by being baptised in water. Not at all. Not at all. He's speaking about the transformation of the heart that that outward ceremony points to. Spiritual baptism is what actually saves us, not the outward physical ceremony of baptism. Spiritual change, which that physical baptism represents. So let me just be clear, and I feel like we might need to be. <laughs> baptism of the Holy Spirit, using the language from uh, the, the earlier Gospels there, may be defined as the work whereby the Spirit of God places the believer into absolute unity with Christ and into unity with others in the body of Christ at their moment of salvation. Paul said this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, For we were all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. That's spiritual baptism. So the question that we've got to think about, and we'll talk a little bit about next week, is how, or should, should I say, does it matter how we do the symbolic? Does it matter whether we baptise a person fully underwater in the church? Could we go out to the river? Could we do it in a bathtub? What if that person has some kind of fear of water? Do we need to actually put them all the way under? I was out through the week with some folks doing some work uh, in the river. and you know, One guy absolutely terrified of the water. I've not seen that in a, in a person recently. Took ages to talk him through what he had to do. What do you do with a person like that? Well, we'll think about that next week. 
but we want to be clear that that's not what baptism really is. It's what happens in our hearts. So why talk about this? Why talk about this issue? Well, let me just give you a couple of things to think about. First of all, because what we believe about baptism actually is important. In fact, what we believe is important. We live, as I said in the prayer earlier today, we live in a very confusing world. And some people are kind of thrown up their hands in despair and says, well, does it really matter what I believe? The answer actually is yes, because our beliefs shape our behaviour. What we believe is actually worked out in, in what we do and how we behave. So belief is important and understanding what we believe about baptism is important when we're talking about this topic. <clears throat> Why talk about this question? Because when we talk about baptism, we actually need to know what it is we're saying. And it's important for us too because we want to make sure there's no confusion, confusion for us in the church between uh, the manner that we baptise physically and what's happening in the heart when a person receives Christ. And it's important too because we want to be consistent with what the Bible teaches about baptism. What does the scripture actually say? And it says much about the transformation of the heart that that physical reality points to. Now next week, as I've said, I will speak about physical baptism, what the symbolism means, when we should perform it, how we should perform it, and significantly why every Christian should be baptised in water. But that doctrine can only be properly understood when it stands on this foundation of what we've just spoken about this morning, and that is that spiritual baptism that's performed by Christ. Spiritual baptism that guarantees our inheritance of all of that which Christ has promised to us. Spiritual baptism that God performs on us, performs on our hearts when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Spiritual baptism which gives us a hope is a guarantee of the resurrection and assurance of salvation. Let's take a moment to pray before we invite Beck and the team to come back and lead us in worship. But let me say too, uh, by way of conclusion, uh, two things. First of all, if you've never thought about baptism and you want to talk about that, Matt, myself, uh, any of our elders here this morning would love to do that. If you're feeling God prompting you to be baptised, whether you've been baptised in another tradition at a different time or never at all, uh, now's a great time to think about that. Second thing is at the conclusion of our service, we do have other folks who are going to be here available to pray for you, uh, not just for you, but for others as well. So we want to invite you um, today, if there's any particular need that you have or uh, that you know your neighbour has or a friend has or a family member has, our, our prayer teams would love to, uh, love to be used in that way. Let's pray though. Father, we just give you thanks again for your word for the depths of it, for the riches that there are in it, and for the teaching that we have uh, explored just a little today around the issue of baptism. Lord, we thank you for the transformation that happens in our hearts when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord. We thank you that that transformation is not something we can affect ourselves. Otherwise, why wouldn't we? Uh, it's something that you do. It's something that you do completely. It's something that you do perfectly. And we do pray as we think about this topic that um, we will not minimise either the symbolic or the reality, but understand how they, how they actually stand in relationship to one another. 
as we explore this topic too, as we think about baptism, as we put it back on the radar, as it's very much on our agenda. As you speak today too to your people, for those who perhaps have been thinking about baptism, have been putting it off, perhaps scared of standing in front of other people or worried about what it might mean or just not sure, Lord, just allay those anxieties and fears, we pray, and let the response of each heart be truly the response that um, honours you, Lord Jesus who commanded us as disciples to go out and make disciples, baptising them in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.